You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 229. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Clark. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. You have reached another Local Maximum. It was good to have a, a week off last week as Aaron and I, uh, we, we were at a, a little little bachelor party. We took a, a party bus with some thre- uh, friends through the uh, Appalachian area. We hit up, how many states did we hit up? West Virginia, Kentucky, Indiana, Tennessee, North Carolina. So it was, it was a five-state trip. Pretty cool. And I'm glad I had that, that Bayesian episode in the can. I hope you enjoyed last week's throwback episode uh, where I was being interviewed on Bayesian Inference. I actually enjoyed reviewing that stuff myself because sometimes I forget all of the uh, all of my background in, in Bayesian Inference and Bayesian Statistics that, uh, that, uh, that like through all the projects that I've done over the years. And uh, also that gives us enough background to get into today's interview which is the author of a book that came out in the last few years on Bayesian statistics. It's called Bayesian Statistics, The Fun Way. And guess what? The conversation went the fun way. It went in all sorts of different directions from philosophy of truth and logic. Um, some We mentioned some movies, political think, thinkers. We, man, we mentioned, uh, we talked about functional programming. So um, if you're, if, if you're, if you are into uh, learning things and intellectual discussions, you don't actually have to grasp the entire interview. We we go all over the place, so you, there'll be some some really strong, uh, really uh, really cool uh, uh, nuggets of knowledge for you in there, um, and I I think you're gonna love it. Um, this is uh this is this is the real this is the real deal for the local maximum audience. So, without getting um, without uh, further delay, my next guest is an author and data scientist who writes the blog Count Bayesie and is also the author of Bayesian Statistics, The Fun Way. Will Kurt, you've reached the local maximum. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's uh, it's great to finally be talking about Bayesian inference again. You know, I uh, this was a huge theme on the show starting from way back in episode zero. It was, you know, hey, this is, we're doing Bayesian inference. This is how you find, this is what happens when you're in a local maximum, all that stuff. So uh, it's, it's, and some of my most popular episodes are on, are on Bayesian theory, which is, if you can believe it, um, this is a popular subject. I, so, I believe it, of course. I'm a little biased. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm sure you would. So I guess first is, I, I just want to know, like, what's your, what's your Bayesian origin story when you learned probability and statistics originally, did you learn it from a Bayesian perspective? Did you learn it from a different perspective and then kind of have to move over after, uh, after doing some research, doing some soul searching or whatever it was? Uh, yeah, it's a great question. So actually, I, I have a very non-traditional background. I don't know if uh, it used to be a point people love chatting about. But so I'm actually an English major, undergraduate. Um, in, in undergrad, I prided myself on not taking any math classes. Um, but my roommate was a, a mathematician, so he actually got me to see that math is, is in fact, a very, very interesting subject. Um, it's actually really helpful because when you learn math in school, you kind of learn this computation first. So I didn't really sort of see the deeper beauty of mathematics until my roommate kind of enlightened me. And it was great to sort of have that shortcut. So uh, I actually ended up being very interested in math after that. I was a librarian, so I actually have a, a library degree. Uh, still no math yet. Started programming a little bit. So I actually uh, eventually got a degree in computer science as well, but it, it took me a long time to actually get to math. So I, I largely am self-taught in a lot of mathematics, and that's why I came to Bayesian computation. So I was interested in data science. I had sort of a machine learning background. I was working at a startup at the time uh, called Kissmetrics, and they needed me to run some A-B tests. And I didn't know much about the actual, you know, I didn't know much about T-tests at the time or any of that stuff. And what, what I didn't like was just, I hated stats. I read a stats book, I'd, I'd done that before, sort of gotten sort of the basics. I think it was the head first statistics. But one thing I didn't like was running statistical tests and not knowing what, what it means. Um, and this is prior to reading any Bayesian philosophy. So now I have a very strong opinion about that. Uh, but my intuition was, I don't understand why I'm doing this. I don't really understand what this number means. And therefore I can't really use these tools out of the box because I don't feel comfortable because I can't make a decision and say, this is why. I, I can't just say this is the p-value and we're done. So I actually, started working on in my head the idea of like how should a how should you you know i'm doing a b test for websites so you have two conversion rates and i started thinking about how should i solve this problem 
And I thought, okay, well, you know, if this was a binomially distributed random variable, we had this many successes and failures, this would be the most likely. And, and then what happens if it was a different one and iterate? And that's actually the beta distribution. That line of thinking gets you to the beta right. distribution. And basically you build out a Bayesian A-B test. And that that got me reading, you know, I was always, always to this day still feel self-doubt whenever I do any kind of statistics project. So I was very, very anxious about my test design. And I thought I must've been doing something wrong. So that got me starting to read more and more books. And I realized that I was in fact um, a Bayesian and that that's really what what excited me about that was my realization that there is this sort of rational approach to statistics. I always felt intuitively when I read classical statistics books, um, and I don't want to just say frequentist, I think it's a little unfair, um, sort of these sort of traditional, you know, do stats to solve problems type books. I didn't really understand why things were happening and I understood how to do the test, but not why. And then I realized there's this whole Bayesian world where yes, we can just sort of take these logical things. And I'm a big fan of in both code and in, um, in mathematics, building up things from first principles. So you really understand all the moving parts. And that way, if there's an issue, you know, you can actually understand where that issue comes from. You can debug your thinking in that way. So yeah, a few questions that come out of that. I mean, first, I just want to go back. So how did you go from being a librarian to then like, you know, working at a, a tech startup as a, as a machine learning engineer, like that transition must've been tough. It was, like, it, was a, it was a little bit of a long journey actually. So uh, it was a long process. I started um, a really interesting story. I, you know, I don't want to go too deep into it, but I started, okay, uh, so yeah. I, well, we can, I, I love telling the story, but um, I, so I actually started um, out of undergrad, going to library schools, working at the MIT libraries. Um, I didn't expect that. Actually, my original plan was to work in public libraries, but I had done some accounting for a public library. And there was a team at MIT that needed someone that was good at sort of that type of thinking um, for acquisitions for books, and they hired me. So I didn't expect to be at like, you know, one of the most prestigious institutes in the country or the world. I thought I was going to be at some small town public library. And, and, and the, being there, I got exposed to um, all of these really cool ways of thinking and thinking computationally. And I... Um, I, I didn't know how to program yet. I kind of wanted to. Um, and I ended up building these macros to automate my job away. It was one of my favorite stories is I, I sort of automated all the things I had to do. And I was talking to a friend and my manager came over and I told her, don't worry, I'm working. You can go look at my machine. It's it's running <laughs> right now, all these things. Anyway, I took a Python class there, got into software. Um, and then I uh, started building all these tools for librarians in software. And then I went to work as a research, once I got my degree, I went to work as a research engineer, a research librarian at uh, BBN Technologies. They are now part of Raytheon, but they were the original ARPANET contractor. Um, they were doing some very cool work in, um, this was before sort of the machine learning boom, 2006, 2008. Um, and they were doing work with SVMs and all this machine learning. and um, Coming from a library background, I was really fascinated by this because I saw so the, the solutions to natural language processing problems they had involved the same concerns librarians had about, you know, thinking about precision and recall and, and are you classifying these things correctly, but it was done in this formal way, which I really found attractive. At the time, I had no mathematical background. I was just learning to code. So this seemed like impossible, this world of, of doing that. So I ended up doing software engineering um, in libraries. I later moved to the University of Nevada, Reno, and I did software engineering as a librarian. So in, in libraries, you often have to have the degree in library science, very academic, right? You have to be a librarian to write code for libraries. <laughs> so Wait, I have oh, to- So you're, you're not still in Massachusetts, right? Uh, no, so actually uh, my journey through life has been, uh, grew up in New Jersey mostly, um, moved to Massachusetts, I, moved to Reno, Nevada, moved back to Massachusetts, and now I'm back in New Jersey. So I've, okay, I've done... I, I was just asking because I would have been so like, oh my god, I should have had you in person if you were here because I'm here <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Salem, I'm in New, New Hampshire. Now, so I was actually just <laughs> in, right. uh, yeah a few years ago. I was back in the Boston area. Yeah. Um, Although yeah, my, so, my co-host Aaron, who my my listeners will know, he went to MIT, and so he would. Uh, he oh, great, great, yeah. It was it was a really cool cool place to work, yeah. and I really got exposed to so much. I, I, actually, it's funny because I remember another thing that always um, sort of surprises me today is I remember, um, anyway, my job was to basically stamp books. It was kind of boring, but it was a cool place to do boring work. And I actually remember looking at all these machine learning and stats books and thinking to myself would I ever be able to read such a book? And it's very funny to start writing those types of books now. Um, so not only can I read them, but I, you know, I'm actually writing books. So I've, I've gone a long way. Um, yeah. yeah, anyway, so, so I was working as a, 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 the title was application development librarian, but I was um, writing code for the library, building kinds of cool things. And then way back in 2010, so this is after the 2008 recession, those things hit academia at a different rate. So we started getting uh, 
salary cuts and I decided to leave into software. Software was great, but I got kind of bored quickly and realized I was really, really fascinated with this original insight that I was interested in, in sort of these quantitative approaches to understanding information that, you know, the library stuff got me thinking about data and information and knowledge and all this stuff, but I really felt like I was missing that. So I got a stats book, learned statistics, and then the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau was hiring um, a team of people from startups, and they were very open to me not being, the role was back end an engineer, but they were open to me being kind of a data scientist. So I went to there and then from there I went to a startup. So that's how I got to this point in the story where I learned phasing and statistics. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, that's, there's a lot of really interesting stuff in there and I'm, I'm sorry to pull, pull on lots of different things. Oh, but you can, you can. That's why I said, uh, yeah. the only reason I said it, why I want to make it quick is because there's a ton of rabbit holes you can go right. through. So I'm well, happy to dive down them though, if you'd like. Well, there's, there, there's one, one question that, 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 that might open up new insights for, for me, because I don't know too much about what it's like working in a library or, or managing a library and all that. So like, um, do you think there were any insights you had from working in a library that, that, that helped you, um, with, with software engineering and data science, you know, in terms of organizing information, um, you know, and I, thinking I, about that? I guess in, in a, in a weird way, I, I think it, the one thing libraries don't have and library science doesn't have is uh, at least when I was there, is it never, there's a lot of sort of fear of quantitative methods. Uh, it's a lot of people that didn't, you know, that went from history backgrounds or English major backgrounds into libraries. And that was something I felt lacking. I actually didn't like my cataloging class. Um, when I took that, I did terribly in that. And I didn't like it because it was a lot of rules without a lot of reason. And um, I think in a weird way, like, you know, I mean, you are thinking about organizing information and you're thinking about uh, actually the, the, to, to pivot to the positive part real quick. The one thing that I really liked about library science, which I still use all the time, is one of the basic techniques you learn when answering reference questions. When someone comes to the desk and asks to find something is you don't you don't find them the thing they ask for you clarify what they're looking for, right? And, and sort of, because oftentimes people say, I need a cookbook. And you say, why? You know, like, what are you really trying to solve? And then you realize that their problem is actually different than the one they think, right? They're looking for, so that was a positive thing. But the negative thing about library science that I really was frustrated with, which I think helped me be more receptive to um, this sort of data science techniques was the fact that there was this system of organization, but it was really just, it was based on a bunch of heuristics. There was no guiding principles. There was no information theory, you know, uh, there was none of that. And, and I thought, and, and so when I found it in data science, I think it resonated even more strongly with me. I wouldn't even say data science, I would say information theory, statistics. Data science I view as like the practical work related aspect of these, of these disciplines. So I think that's what made me excited is when I saw um, that there is a way to think about knowledge and information in a quantitative way where you can really reason about these things. So it, it sounds like it helped in a couple of ways. Like there were, like you said, the clarifying questions, which um, there were some takeaways and then there were some, uh, you had some reaction twos yeah. that you took away f into, into data science, which is still pretty cool. Um, it's still kind of neat to see that there's always like, you know, the, 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 the two different approaches. Um, so yeah. Um, I had a comment about A-B tests. I don't know if it's going to turn into a question, but like, you know, we, we worked in, you know, I, I've worked on that with, uh, you know, with some people. We were, we were doing like some pretty advanced machine learning, but then we looked at A-B tests and like, you know, after looking at it for a little bit, we eventually figured out what we should be doing, but it's a lot more complicated than you think. Like we're like, well, we're smart. Why can't we figure this out after like a few, uh, after it's not as obvious as, uh, as, as, as you might expect. Um, I almost want, sometimes my audience likes a little bit of uh, a technical explanation. Um, do you think maybe we can, um, you could try an audio, which is really difficult to explain what uh, the beta distribution is? Oh, yeah. So, well, you need to kind of have an intuition of what a binomial distribution is to start with. Um, so the binomial distribution is just, you know, if you have a, a coin that that's 50% heads, 50% tails, you flip it 10 times, how likely is it to get five heads? How likely is it to get three heads and blah, blah, blah. So if you think about this for a uh, website traffic, right? If you get maybe a thousand people visit and a hundred click, um, you know, you can sort of look at that as what's the probability. If you, let's say, let's say uh, you knew the conversion rate for the website, which you don't usually, right? Let's say we knew it's a 10% conversion rate. So you get a thousand people come, hundred people click. There's a certain probability of that happening of, of all the pop, even if it's the 10%, doesn't mean you're going to get that expectation, right? You might get slightly less or slightly more. 
Um, and then you can look at the probability of that. So the, the beta distribution is, okay, what if I looked at every possible um, binomial distribution that could have been behind this, right? Um, and you know, the example I was given, I'm sort of walking people through this, is that if you see uh, a website that has a thousand visitors and a hundred clicks, what's your estimate for the conversion rate? You'd say 10%, but then you can always follow up and say, well, couldn't it be 11%? Couldn't it be 0.10001%? Of course, right? Right. So the, the beta distribution essentially, essentially, essentially is the distribution of all possible uh, binomial distributions. And then you can, if you did that, they wouldn't be normalized into a probability, right? Because they don't add up to one. They're all going to get sort of higher probability. So you just do some math and normalize it. And there's a couple catches gotchas there. I think technically you really want to incorporate a prior probability distribution over that to make it exactly equal to that. But more or less, that's the idea. It's a distribution of how strongly we believe, given some observed rate of something happening, um, that we think it's that, that we believe in each of the possible conversion rates it could be. All right. So I, I want to get in, and beta distribution is certainly covered in this book. Uh, I'll, put, I'll hold it up. Bayesian statistics, the fun way, uh, which uh, it seems like it's uh, it's around. This is not uh, this is not hidden in uh, like I was I was going around in Barnes Noble. I saw it out. So congrats. Uh, I know it's probably came out a few years ago, uh, 2019, which seems like a long time ago at this it point. Does, yeah. but, <laughs> <laughs> did you? Uh, why? Why did you decide to write this book? Um, and did you try to take a specific approach to learning Bayesian stats that uh, hasn't been done before? Yeah, so I, I, I yes to all those, um, I think. Um, so I actually was working on, I have another book out, um, Get Programming with Haskell. Uh, it's the first book I wrote. Oh. And I, I wrote that with Manning. And I was working on that when No Starch reached out. So I have the blog, I have Count Bayesian, which, is, which predates all of that. So the, the okay. long so yeah, go go go. Let's start at the beginning. So you've got your blog, Count yep. Bayesian, and, 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 so then... that, and that blog actually started out of my anxiety. I talked about it. Sort of, am I doing this right? I was like, the best way, you know, on the internet to learn something is to tell people how it works, and if it's wrong, people will tell you you're wrong pretty quickly. <laughs> uh, the funny thing I've gotten is aside to anyone who writes web content. I mean, you create web content. The the big the biggest heuristic I've learned after all this time of publicly writing is that anytime someone comes screaming at you that you're a moron, they are actually almost always wrong. Like when you pause and look into the details, but anytime someone comes up to you and goes, um, excuse me, I, I, you know, I've just been studying this for 30 years, but I think, I think you might have <laughs> that backwards. That person's always right. Like every time yeah. someone's humbly apologizing as they bring up something, um, and, and, it, and it's not like this bias. I actually, when I started, whenever people were mad, I always took it seriously and tried to really, you know, because I thought I was wrong about everything. So I always try to double check things. And, uh, but my, my heuristic now is almost anytime someone comes screaming at me that I'm a moron, um, they're actually often um, not correct. Uh, but like I said, um, without, without fail, someone that quietly suggests maybe I don't quite have the perfect understanding. I'm usually fundamentally wrong on my assumptions and have to rewrite post it. So it's only happened a few times in my, in my writing career, but it has happened. And um, that's, that's my, someone comes humbly to you, be prepared to listen. So, um, but yeah, so I started the blog and in part because I uh, really wanted to put stuff out there and be told I was wrong. Um, and I also was, you know, I was an English major, so I, I finally got to, I really liked writing um, and I, I got into that. So I was writing the blog for a while and it had, thankfully, really, uh, I was, my first post was on Bayes Theorem and Lego with Legos and it, it actually blew up right away. I didn't even have Google Analytics at the time, but I think it had like 100,000 views and got picked up by all kinds of, uh, you know, I think uh, Flowing Data, or one of those old data sites, uh, I'm not sure they're still around, but they got they picked it up and, and republished it. And it was just like, it was wild to have this thing you wrote in an evening published in the next day, it's all over the internet. It's on the front page of Hacker News. And um, so that was really cool. And I got really into writing for that and um, just writing at an incredible pace. My earlier content, I don't love as much in retrospect because of that. It was kind of, I was working with a lot of content marketers. So I was trying to like fuse techniques of content marketing with writing. I've changed my writing a lot over the years, um, but- um, Yeah, anyway, it's- it's hard yeah. to experiment with different, especially different formats for the podcast, similar problem. We, yeah, and it's a, it's a tough thing when you create content, especially educational content. And it's something I think actually I'm very mindful of. And, and actually, I haven't talked about a lot of these things. But, you know, there's, there is this uh, economic drive to behind content creation where you can kind of fall in the trap where you want to either make a lot of money doing it or just get a lot of likes and, and ego from it. And the problem is inevitably that starts driving you towards um, like edutainment, right? Like you start you start missing on the real stuff. So I actually made a decision a long time ago. To, I'd rather be less successful 
and 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 write about the things I want to write in the way I want. I'd rather write. There's actually a great um, Emma Goldman, the famous anarchist, has this great uh, in her anarchism another essay. She has this great quote about how she stopped doing public speaking. Um, because she said when she would do these public rallies, everyone comes out and is cheering and is excited and it's great, it feels great. This is written in the 1940s, I think, 1930s. This is not social media time, but totally relevant. And people would just be pumped, but she realized it didn't, it would fizzle out, right? This energy would fizzle out as soon as the event was done and no one cares anymore. And so she started writing because she said the five people, in fact, I'm quoting this, you know, 70 years later is a testament to her correctness in this, right? The, the five people who will read and engage with your writing um, that's much more valuable, right? Those those few minds that will sit there and stew over it and think about it. That's that's the more valuable thing. So um, it's something people have asked me. You know, should, and I don't create a lot of video content. I do from uh, Patreon. Um, I do for a small group of people, but I don't um, I don't generally make video content. And I actually don't plan on it because I I don't want to be pushed into that sphere. So that that was a bit of a tangent, but it's actually something I, I think yeah. it's an interesting thing to talk about. I haven't really mentioned before. We're doing video today, but that's a little different. No, no, yeah, and, 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 and it's, not, it's not a total like anti like we can't do video, right? But there is this. It's something that's hard in content creation is you you don't want to, um, and it's very tempting to be successful at all costs. But you have to ask what you want from your content. You know, some people do want right. to just be they want to be a name on a billboard and be very famous. They want to be a household name. That's there's nothing wrong with that, right? Uh, I always use Kanye West as an example. I think Kanye West is uh, misunderstood in some ways because he's someone that's turned to constantly pursuing um, that next level of fame. And I think he's a great example of someone who you can tell is never satisfied with it either. Uh, but I can't blame him because everyone kind of wants that in their own way. There's a tendency in all of us to want to be loved by everyone and appreciated by everyone and very successful in everyone's eyes. Um, but as a content creator, it's a choice you have to make where you want to go because it will change the nature of your content over time. Um, Absolutely. So, uh, so anyway, yeah, so I was um, writing a lot and, and getting a fair bit of attention, was pretty happy with the blog. And then um, I years ago had done some uh, writing on Haskell and I had uh, done some functional programming um, talks as JavaScript way, way long time ago. And uh, Manning reached out to me to do a review for, um, I actually forget which book it is. I know I think about it, I don't even know if the book is out. Um, I don't yeah, know if it they've ever been happened. A They've been a sponsor of us in the past too. Oh yeah, Manning. Manning is great. I mean, Manning and No Stretch are both excellent publishers. I really like working with them. Um, they're they're awesome. I have nothing but good things to say about both of them. Yeah. Um, Wait, the other one is uh, No Starch. That's the, that's that's this no, one, yeah. No right? Starch. Yeah, so, No Starch is the publisher yeah. okay. of, of the Bayesian book. Um, yeah. And uh, so Manning um, Manning reached out to me for a review. I gave them a review, and they always when you do reviews for publishers, they always ask, you know, do you want to write a book? And actually, um, I actually mentioned, uh, it's really funny, I told them I want to write a book on Bayesian statistics. They did not have any interest in that. But they came back to me and they wanted to write a Haskell book. I used to, my first passion in computer science was programming languages. So I, I was really excited because I wasn't very quantitative yet. And I was really excited about programming languages. And I really was into Haskell and um, functional programming. And I kind of had actually given it up when I went to data science. I was kind of frustrated by how like this pure programming paradigm was less successful than a few vectors in R, you know, pretty little few mm. lines of R, simple vector math. You can solve these really hard problems. That's so much cooler. Right, right. But I never really felt like I had mastered Haskell the way I wanted to. So I um, I, I accepted the, the, the challenge, I guess, of writing a, a Haskell book. And uh, wow, that was a hard a hard thing to do. It was exhausting. It's 600 page book. It, this, I can't believe I wrote a 600 page book on Haskell. Um, it was a very That's interesting. A, I, I can't even imagine like the, the editing of that because I wrote like an 11 page paper before and I just kept finding errors over oh, and yeah. over. Oh, but like, oh, six, errors. I still uh, get like, I get so many messages still from both the books. People will say, yeah. Oh, great book. But page 137, there's a typo here. And I'm like, yes, I know. I know. I had editors. I, um, someone once criticized my blog actually they're like this is not professional I was like well I've got news for you it's not not a professional blog it's just me <laughs> <laughs> so I do, I do this on my weekend between writing other books so um, I don't get the perfect error correction on that uh, yeah, editing is very tricky um, and with that book with the Haskell book a lot of rewrites or certain the sections that I'm most proud of on, on Monaz which is a tricky topic I rewrote that whole three chapter section I think three or four times until I was done I completely rewrite so a lot of work. Um, and uh, in the middle of that, uh, NoStarch reached out. And um, I've always loved NoStarch as a publisher. Um, and my dream was to one day write, write for them. They were one of, they're, they're sort of a, uh, I, I really like Manning, um, but Manning always sort of writes books I feel that are kind of very practical and, and to the point and they're excellent technical books. Um, and I was happy to write a book for them, but NoStarch, they're, they're a very fun company and, and they write a lot of these sort of like 
whimsical books and, and, and the, they did um, um, Learn You Haskell for Great Good, right? Which is sort of the... Oh, yeah, yeah. I've yeah, heard that of was, that one. That, it's yeah, just I mean, hard to forget that title. Exactly, yeah. And that, that's a perfect example of the kind of book I... I uh, which is funny, I never ended up writing a book like that. I was really inspired by that and the books with the little schemer. I never wrote a book that was actually that wacky, uh, even though I was really inspired by those people. Um, but so No Starch was... Uh, I was always interested and I really wanted to write a Bayesian book. Um, Haskell was not my favorite thing. I just was happy to sort of solve this problem in my head of, can you write a Haskell book? Still can't believe I can. Um, and uh, and it's, it's actually enjoyed really, people that read it really like it. Uh, it's, it's a much more niche topic, but uh, the people there are actually, uh, I get a lot of fan mail from that book with a disproportionate number of people reading it. So um, yeah, it's done, it's done, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Haskell. I take a lot of inspiration from it. And um, one of my professors is an undergrad, uh, the, the late um, Paul Hudak was one of the oh, de yeah, yeah, developers of, yeah, of it. Yeah. And so, and and th that class like changed the way I look at things. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it was a fascinating, and the reason I actually wrote that book, the big thing that motivated me was um, I never read the Haskell book I really liked. And part of it was because everyone that writes Haskell books, except for me, is absolutely in love with Haskell. And I was not absolutely in love with Haskell. And I wanted to write a book from that perspective that says, yes, this is stupid and annoying, but it's also cool, right? Like, yes, these things are frustrating, but if you get past that, this is really valuable. And I felt that's what was missing from other Haskell books. And I was like, well, you know, I actually quote in the, in the preface to that, there's a great J.D. Salinger quote where he talks about, if you want to write a book, just imagine the book you want to read and then have the audacity to write it. And that's basically where that book came from. Okay. Um, so No Stars reached out in the middle of that. And said, you want to write a Bayesian statistics book? And I was like, I absolutely, absolutely want to. And I want to write it with you. But I am like up to my eyeballs writing this Haskell book. So I'll do it. But it can't start until after this is done. They're, they were totally understanding of that. And um, yes, and to your other question about what did I want that I want something different? That was absolutely. I had a very strong vision um, with that book. And um, it's interesting the different motivations for writing, like the Haskell book, I, I really wrote that as the Haskell book for me and people liked reading it. I actually did, I actually wrote Bayesian statistics for other people. Um, so both methods of writing, I believe work. Um, but the, the thing I noticed with statistics books is they are all, uh, they're all hard. <laughs> and, and I think uh, what's it, uh, Krushke's book talks about that, right? Like it's the, you just need a lot of math. Um, and they all assumed you knew statistics. And it's frustrated me because my road to Bayesian stats was this is the most rational logic solution, logical solution to a problem I have. And so I felt the opposite. I felt like, no, this is the only, what's hard is understanding where all these frequentist things come from and all these classical statistics. That, that's hard, right? Like, why do I have a p-value? What does that mean? Like, if, if you don't even know what your results mean, that's harder. And so yeah. I, was, I, I thought it was tough because I also kind of got tired of, I don't think there's any apologetics in um, Bayesian statistics the fun way. Almost all other Bayesian books start with like an apology for Bayes <laughs> and like, you know, sort of, I, we know, you know, frequentist stats, here's why you should know this. And so the intended audience, this is changing now. Uh, it's changed even since I've written this book a bit. There's a lot more things in that space, but most Bayesian books started with explaining, okay, you already know frequentist stats. Here's why you should bother with this book. And I wanted a book Someone once asked me something about the title of it, and I and I actually really wanted, in my heart, to be able to just call it statistics the fun way, um, because I don't want I want Bayesian statistics to be the statistics people do. I want that to be how people think. I don't want to right. clarify it's Bayesian. Make it a little bit of a Trojan horse. Maybe that's not a good exactly. Thing. And and also I felt like you know I mean there is a marketing side of these things. The truth is Bayesian is is a selling term, and also it is clarifying. I didn't want someone that has a my biggest concern actually is someone that has a stats class that's frustrated will get that book. And then still fail stats because they learn something, but they it doesn't matter oh, what's yeah. on the exam. So, um, so one day I want to live in a world where it doesn't have to be called Bayesian statistics the fun way; it can just be called statistics the fun way. But yeah, so that's what I want. I wanted to create a book for a really broad audience of people. Um, I think I mentioned it—the kind of thing I would like a CEO of a startup to be able to read on an airplane um, if they if they have to. You can read it pretty quickly and get the idea. And, it, and it's in part because I feel like a huge part of Bayesian statistics is a way of thinking and and and, and understanding problems. And whether you're a marketer or a, or a business person or an academic or just someone that likes to think about stuff, there's a lot of value in Bayesian statistics and Bayesian thinking. And I wanted to write a book for all those people. Um, and I mean, it seems like it, it's worked. So <laughs> I'm happy with that. Yeah. So uh, to follow up on that, like what kind of feedback have you gotten? Were you happy with um, 
that were there types of people who picked up the book you weren't expecting um or you know i mean i'm always surprised i guess i shouldn't be um i kind of live in my own little bubble i'm always surprised how big the topic is in academia and how most of my audience is academics i i always do kind of write for myself and i'm not by nature an academic um i've done tons of schooling so i mean it's not like i don't have academic experience and i know it was faculty at one point when i was a librarian but like you know i i don't um I don't think of academics as my primary audience, but they're a pretty big audience for it. Um, but I've seen I've seen all kinds of people, and the reception has been uh, honestly what I would expect. People often ask like, "What would you change about it?" And there's really I don't think there's anything I would add or take away um, from the book. I think it's uh, it's good, and, and it's been you know for a stats book very successful. It's kind of surreal to actually. Um, I think if you if you just search Bayesian statistics on Amazon, it's the number one book, and it's got I think the highest number of reviews. Understandably, it's not you know because it's it's more general, right? So by definition, more general books have more audiences, so it's going to sell better than than more specific books. But it's still wild to see that. And I think it's I just checked today, yeah. and it's typically in the top twenty five percent of all statistics books, top twenty five not percent, top twenty five of all of Amazon statistics books, which is another like, wow, that's that's a wild thing. Um, and like you said, you can buy it at Barnes and Noble and and, and things like that. So um, so it's actually, it's, it's probably been more successful than I than I even thought it would be. I didn't realize there was that much a demand. And um, it's, it's cool to see that because it's a world I want to live in. I want to live in a world where people are more Bayesian and, and think this way. So it's nice to see that, yes, there are actually a lot of people getting into it. Do you think that... Um... Bayesian inference should be taught in in school or introduced in school at like a younger age. Do you think this could be taught? Boy, you know, I, you know, I was thinking about think that question. I saw you post that, and all I could yeah. think about is like, and wow. also like, what level is this book? I'm, I mean, I'm too getting too old. To, I, I, well, I I'll know, answer like, the level of the book first, and then get into but my. But I sort room. of thought, oh, I, maybe I can get this when I was in high school. I, I'm, I'm pretty. Yeah. Sure so the idea, yeah. so I do in, in the preface. I think I say, or somewhere that I mentioned that the only requirement is a vague memory of high school algebra. Um, okay. That was the intention of it. Uh, you know, it's, it, I also have that problem as you get older, you forget what people know um, yeah. and, and what you don't. And even high school algebra is very, very fuzzy for a lot of people. Yeah. So that was my intended math audience for that book. And at the same time, um, as you've noticed, if you if you read it, I, I do you talk about integration. Um, I don't think we talk about derivatives too much. They don't come up, but it's mentioned in the back of the book. Yeah, but it's but not I'm, like it, it's not like throughout the whole thing. Like, yeah. oh my god, if I don't know integration, I'm gonna be. It's but like at the okay, same time, I, I didn't want to avoid those ideas. Uh, that was a yeah. choice of mine actually, because one thing I actually wanted that book to do, which I think it has done, is, is I wanted it to be an introduction to mathematical reasoning as well. I, I didn't want to, a lot of these um, intro books will completely, like, they'll, 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 like they're ashamed of mathematics. They won't talk about it. They think calculus is the devil and you can't talk about it. And I didn't want to go that way because I actually deeply believe that the mathematical reasoning behind it all is helpful. And, and it can be too much. And if you open your standard textbook with math, it gives you a headache and it, it's too much. But once you can pull it apart, there's a lot of insights in, in the math, right? in the notation, into thinking in these mathematical terms. And so I didn't want to um, shy away from math. And I didn't want to advertise, oh, there's no math. I actually wanted the reader to realize that the math isn't tons, uh, but you shouldn't be afraid of it. And, and the math that's annoying, integration is a perfect example of this, right? And doing integrals is the computation part to me is, is still very annoying and tedious and I don't like it, uh, but we have computers to do that. So the, the concept of integral is, is hugely important. You should be aware of that. You should understand what area under the curve means. And it's an important thing. And, and the problem is for most of the history of sort of teaching these topics, understandably, because we didn't have computational tools, they're, they're intertwined, right? Learning what a derivative means intuitively, understanding it as a tool uh, and understanding integration and integral calculus as a tool involved the computation to solve those. The computation is tedious and in my opinion, kind of boring. Um, and not saying I want to do an error prone, but the ideas are, are fundamental. You really have to understand them. And once you do, a lot of these things become much easier to reason about. And, and getting less scared, um, a huge inspiration for this book was actually the, the great uh, Calculus Made Easy, which was written in like 1908. Um, and, and he just talks about, um, I forget his name, um, Sylvanus Thompson or something like that, but he talks about um, you know, the integral sign is just a big S and it means sum of, and the DX means little things. And it's just the sum of a bunch of little things. And you go, oh, wow, what a clear explanation. And, and so I feel like people have this sort of math phobia because they see these symbols. I still have it. I still have this reaction when I see textbook math of, oh, I'm an idiot. I don't know what this means. And then all I have to do is say, stop. No, it's just dense. Read it. Take your time. And, and, and I get it. And so I wanted to help people um, without even thinking that's what they were doing, start getting familiar with mathematical notation. 
Um, and I think I keep that too because there's, there's, I really like it because in the Amazon reviews, I don't read them too often, but I, I do check them occasionally. There's one person that says, I hate this book, it's not technical enough. And another person that says, I hate this book, it's too technical, which means I've achieved harmony. <laughs> like I, yeah. <laughs> I must have hit the sweet spot because people are complaining both directions. So, right, right. It's, it's, it's one of those things where, like, you know, you have to, it, <laughs> it, I, I, I've, I've had feedback like that too, where it was like, some people said it was too advanced and some people said it was not advanced enough. And it's like, well, what do you expect me to do? Yeah. I don't know. It's like, I, it was a, you know, you can't always choose your audience. So, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, so going back, like, wh- wh- what do you think should be the, the, like, um, the educational, strategy for this obviously we don't have to remake the whole math curriculum here on the show because there's a lot we don't know but like do you have any thoughts on like how this could this be introduced in high school or even earlier like you know yeah i mean is there a conceptual part of it that when i saw your when you posted this question on the list my first thought is like wow our our high schools are like our school system is in such a disarray right now it's Mm. sort of like asking if we should change the wallpaper in a burning building right like (laughs) like yes but i feel like we have so many dire like we're not in that world where that's actually our number one educational mm-hmm. concern. Like I, and, cause it comes up to the, 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 the frequent um, variation on this I hear is uh, should we teach calculus in high school or should we uh, teach statistics? Um, and, and this is like, there's a lot of people that have seen this sort of meme in the past of like, Oh, we should throw out calculus and teach statistics, which is silly to me. Well, there's overlap. So yeah. Cause it, you can't have one without the other. And so there's, there's really two parts. Like in the realist part of me is like, well, we're so far from that being what we're worried about. Like, let's stop getting kids murdered in schools. Let's like teen suicide rates are through the roof right now. It's been escalating every year. And so, you know, I always, whenever these topics come up, I always like to bring them up because it's sort of one thing I can't stand about the statistics world is there's often this tendency to like in technical fields in general, sort of put your head in the sand and talk about technical topics and not engage in the fact that there are real, um, there are real things happening in the world that uh, are, are much bigger priority before we worry about whether it's calculus or stats at the end of 12th grade. I think students right now aren't, aren't in an environment where if, if you read this book in high school, you have so many other things in your head, this is not going to impact your worldview. You're not going to go, oh, mm-hmm. geez, you know, if there's a shooter in my school because of Bayes' theorem, I should, you know, it's, it's not like where your reasoning is. So um, like, you know, in the, in the abstract sense, I think it's like you can't throw out calculus for that question, the calculus versus Bayesian stats, don't throw out calculus in favor of statistics because they're, they're this together. But it's, it's such the wrong problem to think about. Big picture, yes, everyone could benefit from Bayesian statistics. Everyone should learn some Bayesian statistics. But And, and this is actually where I really bring it up because Bayesian statistics is uh, an epistemology, right? It's a way of understanding the world. So if you ignore the world in favor of talking about just statistics, you aren't really talking about it. You're doing both fields a disservice, right? Um, so, so yeah. So I think it's a tricky, it's a tricky question. Yes, yes. In general, everyone should learn both. It would be great. I think it's an important life skill. Um, and and to get a little bit away from sort of the, the dark narrative there, I, I've long felt since I was an English major, um, you know, in English, I used to have this thing I used to say all the time that uh, Foucault. And, and Bayesian statistics were equally important in informing my, my worldview. And I think that's actually an important thing. There's people that don't learn stats. And I think that that's very dangerous because we live in a world where statistics are used all the time to convince you of things. And it's incredibly important, as at least in the adult world. So we can ignore the sort of the, the educational system and, and think as an adult, what skills should we have? And the reason why statistics is very important is because you need to, you know, all these claims that people will say like, you know, eating this, this thing causes cancer increase or whatever. You have charts going by on social media all the time. And oh, almost and all of them are make me mad. <laughs> exactly. And most of the time people don't understand how the um, even educated quantitative people don't realize how a lot of these social claims, this comes up around relevant topics. This is actually related to gun control issues, right? Because the one thing I find fascinating about all these topics is if you actually look at the data, um, it is complicated. Uh, and so this is like sort of my, uh, in fact, I, years ago, I used to do uh, data science mentoring and people were always looking for projects. They had these huge ambitions, these ideas. I said, take a point you care about and list down all of your assumptions you have and then go get data to support them. And I promise you, one of them will surprise you. And I actually forget the details, but I used to use gun control as an example because I, you know, I, I grew up in, in the Northeast, relatively liberal world. So you can kind of assume my, my default views on gun control. But truth is, you look at the numbers and there is a lot more complexity than you think, uh, which which does get to this point where this is where I think statistics and understanding these modeling principles is important because 
a lot of how you're told the world is, is uh, it assumes sort of statistical things. And once you realize it's almost all regression models, right? Every little fact you get, it means that someone put this data in a regression model and saw a, a p-value that was low enough on a coefficient and then wrote an article saying X causes Y. And, and once you see that, you kind of realize how much more skeptical you should be. Um, and the flip side is, it's like I said, with, these, with this project for these data science, uh, these mentees, is that um, it was true. I had uh, some really great students interested in a lot of really cool topics about diversity. And without fail, um, all their assumptions, there would be one that surprised them when they actually tried to put the data together to, to demonstrate that. And I always say the flip side is, that is, if you actually, if I'm wrong, then you've quantitatively proven your your place, right? Your, your position is now back entirely by data and you can you can really be confident in your views. But I said, my experience has been, you always do find one point where you say, oh, I didn't realize that. Um, <laughs> like I, I didn't know that was happening. Yeah. So you, you've written about um, using a, a kind of a Bayesian way of thinking in order to analyze the news. Maybe can you give us like an example of how that helps? Yeah. So that, that article, I was really happy with that. So I, I actually, it actually came... Um, to me, so I think for context, this is important. It was actually right before the, the war in uh, Ukraine broke out. Um, so it was it was brewing. So it was a lot of news reading. And I often, I have like Apple News on my phone, so I'll read the news. And I, I realized I had this habit um, of, of sort of skeptically reading the news and sort of trying to figure out what's actually being communicated because the, the news is, is, is hilarious. <laughs> like, it's, you know, there's all kinds of strange things. So I think the article I talked about there was one about uh, migration patterns around the state and around the country. And it was about, um, it was the, the, it was, it, the, the basic narrative they were trying to imply is that people are fleeing from different parts of the country to other parts based on political affiliation. And we're gonna build these, these clusters of, um, of, of you know, unified political beliefs. And I think implied in that was sort of feeding into this kind of narrative we have in this country about a lot of anxiety of sort of like, oh, I don't want to say anxiety about civil war, but this sort of really strong division in the country. And so we have all that built up in us, right? So that's your prior, right? So if you think about where you're going into the article in Bayesian terms, your prior is all this information you're bringing to the table, right? And your current feelings. So the article was trying to claim that. And, um, and so I thought, you know, this is actually, you can apply Bayesian thinking to this. And this is actually where I think Bayesian thinking is super valuable and kind of cleaning your head and keeping your thoughts clear. And so you can say, here's my prior information. I'm going to this article. I actually think it's right. You know, I'm reading a lot of this stuff. I'm feeling a lot of anxiety. I think that it's probably true that we're getting these huge clusters of, of, of Trump supporting populations and the people fleeing. But when you actually read the article, they have very, first of all, they had very few data points to back this up. And then they had, the ones they had weren't super convincing. So the one I remember, um, off the top of my head was that there was this sort of like um, uh, migration from, well, first off, they had these sort of contradictory claims, like, oh, people are moving from Florida to Texas. And like, well, Florida and Texas are both fairly, like, that's not, it doesn't make sense with that narrative. But the other one was California. And uh, California is also a complicated state because it's got a lot of uh, diverse political views, actually. Um, right. And, uh, but the thing that was funny is that the rate of migration from California to uh, Texas was exactly proportional to the the population distribution of like a lot of people live in California. So yes, a lot of people from California moved to Texas because there's a lot of people in California. Um, right, right, right. And, and that's sort of like your likelihood, right? Like here's this argument they're making. What's the likelihood? What's the data? And then what's your conclusion? And, and I think it's actually a really important part of this. Uh, I realized when I was writing this article is that oftentimes when we read the news, we come up with this weird binary outcome in the end, like that's BS or that's real. And I'm freaked out. But the real conclusion isn't isn't that this isn't happening, right? Like the conclusion on articles, when you take your prior of this is happening, you look at this argument, you go, well, it's actually not very convincing. Uh, if anything, it kind of dissuades me from thinking this is real because what I would expect under a normal migration pattern would be like a proportional migration from the population size. That's what I would expect, right? And I dive in right. a little bit more. So the, the data wasn't as convincing as yeah. You know, in in was... fact, the data, the likelihood in this case, which is the data there, right? Like the probably the, the data given the hypothesis. This this actually to me, I felt like this is what I would expect if there wasn't systemic politically motivated migrations. I would have expected um, either California to be much larger or whatever. And that's not. I'm not convinced by this. Um, and so the point in the end of the article too is that you shouldn't leave saying, "Ha, oh, that article's BS. I don't believe this." You should think about it in Bayesian terms, and what you have is you have a weak prior, a, a weak prior belief that this is true. The the actual likelihood, as explained by the article, 
Um, and also, when you think about terms of trying to data and your hypothesis, you also ignore a lot of the nonsense. Most articles are filler and trying to send this ominous feeling. When you just look at what, what are the claims they're actually making to back this up, you reduce much of the reading. Um, but the end result is, uh, you know, isn't, aha, this isn't real because this isn't supporting that. It's, okay, now I've taken a slight, this isn't real, combined with a slight, this is real, and I leave kind of going, I don't know, I need to see something more convincing. In the next article I read in this topic, I'm actually going to be slightly less convinced going in, but I'm not saying this is complete BS, right? I'm just saying that I need some more stronger evidence. And, and so, um, and that is sort of how we should read uh, read these these news pieces. The, the, yeah. The, the tricky thing, and this is actually why I wrote this at the time, is because I could feel this sort of Ukraine situation um, boiling up, is um, it is tricky when you get into an environment where you can't, um, trust data anymore, right? So as soon as military conflict breaks out, we're kind of in this um, this sort of propaganda space. But even ignoring that, a sort of more neutral example is COVID right now, right? So with COVID, uh, we don't have data, right? Like the, the biggest thing is that current testing is, is way behind and the numbers don't reflect what's actually happening pandemic-wise. Um, and there's been a bunch of articles describing this. And this gets to like my Foucault part of the Bayesian statistics point from earlier, right? Like you need to know Foucault, you need to understand how power works, how the world works, and you need to understand the stats. So you, to read an article and not get overly, you know, hit by the sort of ideological driving of the article, you need a sort of data-based approach. But the flip side is we're, we are, we take data as kind of a luxury, um, especially in the data science world and the math world. We've lived in a great time where there's this tons of publicly available data. The government produces data on everything. Everything about CO2 in the atmosphere is available to us. All these things are available to us. Um, and we can most of the time trust it. But, you know, where happens to your Bayesian tools with COVID data right now, right? It's really hard to paint a clear picture if, you're, if your testing isn't there, right? How big, is the, how big is the pandemic right now, really? How concerned should I be, really? Um, if the data isn't there, it's very hard to, to figure that out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's so many things to pull on and I don't want to, you know, we only have so much time. I'm like, you know, I'm sort of thinking like, okay, who's Foucault? And, and that's going to probably take a little bit uh, too long. Uh, I I did have, uh, maybe we'll have to do, we'll have to bring it up on, a, on another episode. I did have one more question uh, that Again, this could be, actually, this has been a whole episode on the local maximum. So uh, maybe you could just get, get your takeaways, but this is the, 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 the kind of last, and then hopefully it's okay if we, we go a little over. Oh, sure. Um, but like, we talk about priors a lot in Bayesian inference, and I've spoken about how to come up with priors, and it's always like, oh, well, I'm hand-waving a lot. There's a lot of there's a lot of um there's no like like simple answer it's it's always like a lot of here are some ideas that you could use to come up with priors what what strategies do you like best when explaining how you came up with priors do you ever get pushback on the idea of having to choose a prior yeah um, it's, it's a great it's a great question and it's something people are uh are very concerned with in general as Bayesian stats and I, i've actually always find it's a bit uh a bit overplayed uh, as far as the concerns with it because there's a couple of cases that happen in in real life especially in a big data so in big data world you almost always have millions of observations so it doesn't matter right like you're, you're you have so many i, I was, right. i've been building some statistical tools that work for for use cases where people send campaigns out to hundreds of thousands of people and i actually realized you don't even need statistics because the the, the confidence around the things you're predicting is so tight it doesn't even matter anymore, right? Because at that volume, you don't need statistics. Um, okay, so that's the one case we don't have to worry about priors at all because you can choose them or not. It's not going to matter. Um, the the second case, unless you choose a, a Dirac prior, where you're yeah, exactly. Yeah, you, you can you one. can find some way to get yeah. kind of weird results. But like in the so the, but the second case is for a lot of data in this world, we actually do have a lot of prior information. Um, and we can learn that. So, in, you know, like with A-B testing, again, if you want to incorporate priors in your A-B tests, um, it's not that hard. You probably have run tons of marketing campaigns before. You can build a, a distribution over that and actually have a, a prior probability pretty easily for those. Um, and, and so those are, are fairly common. And then we get left with this sort of like my soft priors, right? And and how should I be? And and this is usually being used for more casual inference anyway, um, uh, you know, or, or limited data where you're kind of in this environment where you, you have to make a choice. So there's a couple of parts to this. Um, one is just go with your gut um, because that's what you're trying to model anyway, right? Like you are 
in this case, we have no data to back and you just sort of have your own personal feeling. You have to sort of quantify your gut and, and, you know, do the prior predictive check as it is. And does that make sense? Right. You know, like, like for example, with websites, I've done website A-B testing forever. Um, when I don't have data, I forget what prior I pick off the top of my head, but I, I'll just plot very weak beta distribution priors until it looks kind of like what I feel is reasonable. It shouldn't have a lot of things over 30% conversion because nothing has over 30% conversion. Open rates, right. maybe, but you know, I, you can kind of get a feel for it. Um, but the other, the other part of that is when you're using these kind of squishy priors, the real question is how sensitive is your conclusion to different priors, right? So you, you can often find that you can have... Um, multiple degrees of sort of extreme beliefs and that doesn't really change your conclusion based on the data you have um or you might be able to find that if you have very um you know you, you might find there's a case where two very different priors lead to very different conclusions but that that means like that's where i like bayesian reasoning that actually is a good thing if, if it's very sensitive to if you have a a coworker who disagrees with you radically and it means that the conclusion of the bayesian analysis is you should do totally different things then that means you, you actually have to get more data, right? The, 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 the conclusion from that is we do not have enough data yeah. to make a decision. And if you still have to make a decision, you then it just goes back to the old world of you to have to argue about whose prior is better, right? Right. But, it, but I think it, it actually helps because the fact that you have a prior yeah. is that you're each quantifying with numbers and with, with functions in terms of what your initial beliefs are. And so you kind of show, oh, this is my picture. This is your picture. And so we at least understand what the difference exactly. of opinion yeah. is. Whereas yeah. if we didn't have priors um, and we, we were still arguing, we wouldn't even understand why we were arguing. Yeah. And, and, and it's true. And it's also, um, you know, it's sort of the... I, I, this is the English major part of me is I kind of hate this sort of myth of the, the universal truth, right? I'm, I'm a big, there yeah. is no universal truth. There's, there's no, there's no point of objective view anyway. Right. So yeah, I, I think that's sort of the classic, like this is subjective. I don't have a lot of patience for it because the, in the cases where that subjectivity matters and that subjectivity matters, right? Like that's, you know, you can't just wash it away by saying we're going to ignore it and, and choose a uniform prior. I mean, AB testing is a perfect example of this. Conversion rates are not, weekly uniformly distributed. I know for certain right. that your click-through rate is not going to be 100. If it is, something is wrong, right? It's not gonna be 100%, it can't be. Uh, it can't be 90%. If that's happening, something is wrong, right? Um, and, and so there's no way that that's it, right? <laughs> As someone who used to measure ad effectiveness, uh, yeah. Exactly, but that's <laughs> exactly that, the point. That would happen sometimes. And, so, and, so pretending and it's sometimes, not an issue is, is yeah. not great, yeah. Um, yeah, no, so I, I agree, and that's sort of my, uh, uh, my strong belief. I, actually, the, the flip side of that is I do think, uh, I think I probably, it's not really that controversial of an opinion in my grand scheme of controversial opinions, but you know, there's a lot of love of sort of hierarchical modeling in the Bayesian community today. Um, and I'm actually a little skeptical of the overuse of that um, because, you know, so hierarchical modeling for those who aren't familiar is you basically assume that there's, you have a bunch of observations of something you're estimating and you assume that that population itself comes from some prior and you learn that prior distribution and use that to make better, tighter predictions. But the, the, the catch there. So I did, I, I did an episode in that a couple of years ago with uh, Alex and Dora, the learn Bayesian statistics. Oh, podcast, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he right. does that for, uh, uh, Oh, you've heard of that. Yeah, uh, I've been on, I've been on that podcast. I've been on oh, you've been podcast. on it. Yeah, oh, yeah. fantastic. Fantastic. <laughs> okay, great. Uh, so he, he does it for uh, election modeling, which, yep. which sounds um, very um, reasonable to me. Oh yeah, and it, it is it is reasonable in a lot of cases, and it, it, it can be useful for two ways, right? One, it gets you tighter estimates because um, you're assuming this sort of these things are similar. Um, the other thing is you actually get you get this prior you can look at, so you can actually learn stuff there. That's sort of that hyper prior or whatever that you've learned um, can tell you something about an unobserved variable. So it, it's not to say that it's not useful, but there is this sort of like I think it's because people like complexity because it makes people feel like they're doing something very smart. There's a lot of people I, I find that I know the feeling, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, yeah. But I think it's, it's, it's dangerous because I think people forget that it's a big assumption to say things are alike, right? You're actually building, you know, the whole point of Bayesian stuff is that we're not making all these wild assumptions in our models. And you start saying, I assume all these things are similar because it gives me tighter bounds. Um, that's actually a pretty big assumption. And another example of this is, uh, which is similar, is a quote unquote robust regression. I think I probably complained about this in Alex's podcast too, but I hate the name robust re regression because it should be called, so if you're not familiar with that, it's you assume a, a student's T distribution sort of a longer tail distribution rather than the normal, which means that you're sure. less sensitive to outliers 
which I don't believe in outliers, Bayesianly. I, I mean, they exist in a sense, but what is an outlier, right? You're already assuming a model in your head if you say this is an outlier, right? You, if you're surprised by the data, you should be surprised by it. Um, and, and that's a good thing, you know, when, you, when you're shocked by a number. And if you have an explanation for it, you know that the machine broke when you're measuring things, so we should throw these out, that's fine. But, um, you know, a robust regression will actually ignore uh, data that might actually be meaningful. Sometimes things being seven sigma away from the mean means something, right? It, it Yes, it will break under a normal assumption, but sometimes them all should break. I've actually had a case um, where I was doing modeling and uh, for a company I was working with, and, and one of the things we were doing was involved, um, uh, I don't know how much I can give away, but it's sort of changing the sort or order of things, changing the behavior of things and trying to gauge how their performance changed. And I had some exploding coefficients with a regular generalized linear model. And uh, I thought, oh, this we should, because they weren't, this object wasn't, this item wasn't selling. And I thought, oh, this is a great example of when we should use a hierarchical model because I can learn the distribution all these products convert and uh, I can bound it. But it turns out there was actually a bug in the code and it was doing something wrong in, in what we were doing. And if I had used hierarchical models here, I wouldn't have caught that, right? If, if the coefficients weren't exploding, I wouldn't have noticed something was wrong. I just would have swept it away. So. It's a great tool when you're like baseball player is a classic example, right? Baseball batting averages. We all know their people. We all know they're roughly the same. Uh, they're playing the same sport in the same conditions. Yes, you should use a hierarchical model. Election stuff can be also useful because in elections, you're kind of modeling. You're not so much concerned about getting those things, I assume, um, about getting these tighter estimates. You actually want to know what's that latent distribution this is coming from, right? That's right. very, so there are plenty of cases where it's the right tool for the right job. But I think because it's sort of the, the thing you can do with Bayesian statistics, you can't do as easily with frequentists. It kind of, I, I just sort of a tendency to really want to do it a lot. And, and I think it, there's a lot of, it's a big decision to make um, to choose to assume everything is the same. And it's a big thing to bake into your, your modeling assumptions. So, um, so prior I'm always, I'm always surprised by how far you can get with a simple model sometimes. Oh yeah. Um, even though I, I'm like, well, I learned all this. Why I want to go more further? <laughs> well, and it also depends on the use. One thing I always point out with linear models, I, I, you know, it's, it's funny because my my real life work is always sort of data science teams, and um, there's always a lot of people that have machine learning backgrounds, and I'm always pushing for uh, my my current team is great actually understanding this, but other places have been people are like, oh, we got to use nonlinear models. The world's nonlinear, and I'm like, well, first off. Most things in practice, first of all, you're modeling expectation almost all the time, right? So these normal assumptions are actually not such a bad thing because expectation is Gaussian, right? Central limit mm. theorem tells us that. Um, but the other part of it is in a practical sense, I don't even know how to make nonlinear decisions as a person, right? So yes, if you're having an algorithm make all the choices, it's okay to be nonlinear. But if you're doing any kind of analysis where people have to use this to make an informed decision, you can't you don't really think in like square terms even, right? Like you think in very like, do I push the gas and the car goes faster? Yes or no, right? Like you don't think about the actual curve that the car accelerates when you push the gas. Same with the brake, right? Like when you, when you make decisions, you're making very simple linear decisions. So any kind of analysis that ends up in a decision-making context for humans to decide, especially a committee of humans, um, you really need to people make yes, no decisions. They don't even make continuous variable decisions, right? Sometimes, like gas pedal, you do, right? You push a gas pedal in the car, you do think harder or softer, right? But your brain is still thinking kind of linear, right? I push it much yeah. harder, I'll go much faster. Even, uh, even then, there's probably only a few different modes. You know, it's not... Exactly, your foot has sort of like these sort of discrete places you probably yeah. end up in. Maybe 10 of them, you know, so but this thing I actually almost never see people talk about when they talk about linear models. They'll talk about like, you know, approximations and the validity of an assumption about, you know, like is a linear a good approximation? That stuff's all important. But if your tool is to bring a, a, a decision to a team to make, right? Should we advertise on Sundays or should we increase the cost of this ticket or something? You know, those things are linear things that at best have a continuous component, but usually it's just a binary thing. Like, we'll stop doing this. We, we won't open at night, right? Like, those type of decisions, all of them are, are linear. And if your model is not linear, then you can't make those type of decisions, right? So, mm. um, so it's it depends. And like I said, this is where there's like if you're Google, right, and you are like, yes, we're going to automate a bajillion decisions all the way to the end part. Yes, then nonlinear systems work really well for that, right? It makes sense that you have a very complicated nonlinear function in your learning that's going to be making decisions all the way to the end, but any kind of analytics focused stuff where your humans are going to ultimately be consuming that. Why is churn going too high? What can we do about sales? So those things always are linear decisions anyway. Interesting. That's a, uh, I never heard it put like that. I think I want to think more about um, 
the uh, linearity of decision making because that's I'm always looking for more topics. Yeah, and I actually don't have a good like theoretical text. This is sort of personal yeah. experience, so I'm, I'm waiting. No, for no, some, no. Someone it's will email not a theoretical you and be like, text, "Will but... is totally wrong." <laughs> is an idiot no, no, no. Read this book. <laughs> a lot of times for this show, I take a topic and then I do a little bit of thinking about it, and then I do a show, whether it's it could be a solo show or one with my co-host. So uh, it's always good to have some some ideas in the back pocket. So thanks for coming on. Thanks for taking all the extra time. Um, oh no problem. Well, I just uh, do. You have any um, last thoughts? And where can people find your stuff online? Oh geez, okay. So people can find my blog is Count Basie. It's a pun on the jazz musician. Um, and then I, I do have a small Patreon that I, I mostly do it um, as a way to have a sort of community of people I can just chat with. Um, yeah. So those are probably the two best places to find me. I am on Twitter, though I use Twitter less these days. Um, so if you if you reach out to me on Twitter, I will eventually get in touch with you, um, but may not be that fast. Um, yeah, I think that's sort of the, the basics. I am working very slowly on a new book with No Starch. Um, it's it's called Tentatively Hacking Statistics and uh, with Python. And it's all about, uh, well, the second half, which I haven't even written yet, is all about uh, differentiable programming and, and, and sort of building up statistics from scratch. The theme of the book is building right, up statistics from cool. scratch and all these cool tools. So it's a should be an interesting book, uh, but it's, you know, it's a crazy time. So it's, it's taking its time to get written. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, if you want to do a book tour, a podcast oh, book absolutely. tour after you put that out, you're welcome to come back on the show. The book is called Bayesian Statistics, The Fun Way. Will Kurt, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Max. I appreciate it. All right. Just want to remind you to remember to join our locals, maximum.locals.com to support the show and also to talk to people, uh, talk to me and Aaron and and, uh, the people who, uh, other people who listen to the show. It's a lot of fun on there. So um, uh, yeah, next week, I think, uh, well, might have Aaron on for an update. I might do a solo show. I'm not sure. Uh, But uh, I think I'm going to do an interview related to design that's coming out soon. Haven't done that in a while. That's exciting. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. To support The Local Maximum, sign up for exclusive content and our online community at Maximum.Locals.com. The Local Maximum is available wherever podcasts are found. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe on your podcast app. Also, check out the website with show notes and additional materials at LocalMaxRadio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, send an email to LocalMaxRadio at gmail.com. Have a great week. Feel the power.